Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share with others as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, it's such a pleasure to welcome back onto the show, Mike Barry. Mike is a return guest. He was one of our very first guests in early 2019 when he was head of sustainable business at Marks and Spencers. And today he has his own advisory firm, Mike Barry Eco. He's an expert in sustainable business. And today he's going to be sharing his observations on the state of affairs in sustainable business, some of the key trends, and also some broader social observations of what's going on if we are to achieve the sustainable development agenda for 2030. We're going to be looking at some things like behavioral change at scale, because no matter how much technology we put into this, no matter what policy we put into place, unless people actually change their behaviors, we're probably not going to achieve the sustainable development agenda that we're all seeking. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever and Visa to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, it's such a pleasure to welcome back onto the show Mike Barry, who is an expert in sustainable business. He was one of our very first guests back in early 2019. So I guess we could start by finding out a little bit about what's been transpiring over the last two and a half years. It seems an eternity ago. Mike, welcome onto the show. Alberta, thank you for inviting me back. And I remember that sort of first conversation we had back in MS Towers. And I was reflecting this morning before I prepared for this. Two and a half years, how much has happened? Politically, socially, pandemics, sustainable business. We're going to have a whale of the next sort of 20, 30 minutes on picking it all. Well, Mike, I mean, 2019 on paper doesn't seem that long ago. In reality, it is a lifetime ago. So much has changed. Give us give us a few trends of what's been happening over the last two, two years, two and a half years. Oh, goodness, Alberta, how much has changed? And let me just pick out two or three trends very, very quickly for us to unpick. I mean, the first, the shift from the old world of corporate responsibility, creeping incrementalism, just getting a little less bad each year, 2% less energy, 3% less plastic, to this radical disruption of business models. We've seen it empower the shift from coal to renewables taking off. In mobility, the point where Tesla is now worth more than all the other car companies on the planet put together. A world where activist um, shareholders, given the oil companies to kick up the backside the need, not just morally, but in terms of the risk of losing even more money as the world rapidly decarbonizes. It's not enough just to have a CSR program. You need to put this at the heart of the transformation of your business model. The second thing I've seen is all about the pandemic. It's been a real stress test for, is society really interested in these issues? Yes, they are. I've reviewed 170 different citizen surveys from around the world over the last six months, saying are people still interested? in social and environmental issues, despite having to survive the greatest human challenge since probably the Second World War. Yes, they are. In virtually every marketplace around the world, even after the pandemic, at least 70% of people are somewhat or very concerned about the climate crisis, 
and what business and government to act upon it. And the third thing I'm seeing is the willingness of business to partner for change. This willingness to step forward and say, look, Tesco's and Walmart, huge competitors, Coke and Pepsi are, Nestle and Unilever are. We can't decarbonize on our own. We need to share the journey forward. And a lot of my business now is working with people at the British Retail Consortium, the Food and Drink Federation, the Climate Pledge, to bring business together, huge competitors to collaborate as well. So all around me, I see positive trends. Is it fast enough? No, it's not. Because my final observation is what we've seen in the last two years is the evidence of climate collapse, of biodiversity collapse, of systems collapse, has just grown exponentially. And we're sleepwalking into a crisis unless we accelerate the pace of change politically and economically as well. So a lot for us to get our teeth into our Yeah. So how do we accelerate the pace of change politically, economically? How do we get people to overcome any skepticism that they have? And I imagine the degree of skepticism that you saw two and a half years ago is probably not the same that you're seeing today. Yes, and there's always a bell-shaped curve of acceptance, whether people frame it as citizens, as employees, as, as business leaders, as politicians. There'll always be the naysayers that for whatever political reason, ideological reason, just don't want to believe. But they're ever smaller in number. They're fighting and thrashing around to cling on to the old past. Of course they would, but they're dying around us. There's a new breed of, of leaders coming through, particularly from a younger generation, saying it's not enough to be a little less bad. We need to be dynamically different. Oh, and I've talked about these 170 surveys I looked at. Interestingly, concern about social and environmental breakdown spreads across all generations. But the willingness to do something about it is predominantly in this younger generation of the 40. The willingness to invest differently, work for different businesses, um, drive different forms of consumption. It is all about action. And that's what the younger generation wants. My generation sit on the sofa tutting and saying, something needs to be done, but by somebody else. So change is happening across all individuals, across society. One of the interesting things Paul Pullman said when he was on the Do One Better podcast earlier this year, he said regarding youth, he says, you know, it's not just a question of giving youth a seat at the table. We should just give them the table. Well, well, and, and that's a, a very personal reflection. I mean, when I came out of m a couple of years ago, I mean, lots of people sort of offered the grey-haired old fella, more chief, chief systemity officer roles. You know, I've been around a while, just, you know, safe, safe appointment, make it Mike. And I thought about it long and hard. Then I decided not to. In effect, I've committed professional euthanasia. I need to step away from the C-suite, the, the sort of proverbial glass-fronted um, office on, on the top floor, and say, somebody else sit there, 10, 15, 20 years younger than me. Mike will always be there as a mentor, coach, a guide, a supporter to help you reach your potential. But we need a new generation of leaders coming through, not old, white, grey-haired fellows like me. We need to move to one side quickly. Well, speaking of the next generation, are you finding this reflected in business schools? Not yet. So again, I, I you know, I, I write a lot on social media, and I, I did a piece. It must be four, six weeks ago now, reflecting on our business schools keeping up with the needs of business for transformational leaders on sustainability. No, they're not. I can talk about Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership very positively. I can talk about what London Business School are doing. Oxford started doing something. Exeter University in the UK has got something on a circular economy. And yeah, brilliant. But they're tiny in number. We need to mainstream MBAs, not into specialist courses about sustainability, but into core business practice. Because if you're working in the boardroom now in a diesel car company, you need to have a profound understanding of what's happening in the outside world. Now your business model adapts to it. 
And just teaching people in a 20th century way about linear production systems and growth and consumption ain't fit for purpose. You're actually leaving people who are going to fail as soon as they stand to step into the business business world. We need the business schools to step up. Putting aside the big corporates, the Unilevers, the Coca-Colas, what is it that the smaller, uh, small, medium enterprises, entrepreneurial ventures, what is it that they could do? What is it that they should do in order to drive things forward now? Uh, and this goes to the very heart of it, because over the last decade, a number of voluntary companies have stepped forward and voluntarily to take a lead in space. And again, you've mentioned some of them there, world class. And all of them will get progressively ever better, win more awards, brilliant, I'm really happy for them. They'll lead the disruption, they'll survive the great transformation of the economy. What concerns me most are the millions of SMEs that populate the global economy who don't have a mic or a team to sort of lead them on this journey or support them to look out. They're just sort of working to survive through the current pandemic. And I, I look for two or three different things that are going to drive this great mass of companies on. Firstly, scope three. Scope three is very much about Unilever recognising that its footprint is built up, not of its own operations, its factories and lorries that it owns itself, but happens in the homes of millions of consumers and tens of thousands of suppliers. And the ability not just to audit and set a standard for these suppliers saying, jump this high, now jump this high, but to actually make them climate literate or sustainability literate is critical. And I see more and more big businesses now starting to support and guide their supply chains on this critical journey, not just individually, but through the shared platforms like the climate pledge I was mentioning. So that's driver number one. Driver number two is obviously government legislation. You know, we've seen it in the UK, in Europe, in South Korea, Japan, now Biden's administration, mandating change. So even if you want to sit on the sidelines, you can't because the law is against you. It's driving you to change, which is fantastic. We need more of that across the global economy. And the third thing then is technology. In the old days, I say, I went grey of hair at M&S trying to track and trace three billion individual items that M&S sold every year. Flowers, shoes, um, ready meals, etc. From thousands of locations with a pen, a paper, an advocate and a spreadsheet. Madness. Now with artificial intelligence, with big data, we've got new tools to activate and support efficiently tens of thousands of companies to come on this journey as well. We need to seize that potential of tech for good. Now, the government policy you touched on a second ago, I'd love to get your take on where you see things both in the UK and internationally. I mean, the UK has obviously been doing a lot on the climate side. Um, what's your take on government policy, industrial policy right now? Well, let me start close to home for me, which is the UK, and then we'll, we'll go out on a global scale. On the surface, the UK has got a tremendous amount to be proud about. It's decarbonized its energy supply as well as any nation around the world, the shift from coal to offshore wind. It's done it through firm, stable policy um, over the long term that business has been able to invest against. Subsidies at the beginning of the journey to sort of de-risk it and then progressive removal of the of subsidies of, as offshore wind, for example, has gone to scale. Great. But beneath the surface, there's some great challenges. And typically, a lot of these national pronouncements, policy, uh, policy announcements, not just in the UK, but overseas, lack detailed action plans. And offshore wind, strange to say, was actually relatively easy. In the UK, a small nation, we're now going to ask 66 million people to fundamentally shift how they move around the nation. So 35 million cars in the UK need to be bought differently, charged differently going into the future. 29 million homes in the UK, 19 million of which are leaky, energy inefficient homes. They need new heating systems, new energy efficiency measures, might cost twenty or thirty thousand dollars to put into place for every home. 
That's a big ask. Diet. Again, we've got to encourage people to eat a lower impact diet in the future. Suddenly for policymakers, it becomes very much more complicated because we're into culture wars. We're into having conversations with millions of people, not a few offshore wind developers. So policy needs to step up and understand the narrative to take society with us. And the Biden administration, I think, has done a great job in America about talking about jobs, opportunity, reskilling, a just transition to help steel workers retrade into low carbon industries as well. And that's critical on this. But then I look at one other system that needs to change that no one's touched yet, the food system. 30% of global emissions, it touches everybody's life every day, very clearly. Hundreds of millions of smallholders, not a small number of professional manufacturing companies that dominate car, the car industry. It's political, it's complex, it's difficult. So decarbonizing the food industry will require governments to step up yet again in terms of the social narrative, the need for change, and the human dimension of supporting people on it. And at the moment, I don't see too many signals from around the world that governments recognise that or are able to do it as well. So, you know, good first step up Everest, so much more to do. Now, besides government, the other thing you touched on was technology. I'm always a huge fan of technology and what it can do to improve our world. I'm curious, where are things right now with respect to technology, its carbon footprint, its uh, social implications? So te technology is really interesting because I think as a sector, 10 years ago, the big tech companies were growing very, very fast. The Apples, the, 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 the Twitters, the Facebooks, the, the Amazons, the Googles, etc. And within reason, they saw the, their corporate responsibility, their societal responsibility is growth. You know, we're creating economic growth, we're creating jobs, job done. Very clearly, they've got a very significant footprint. Now, that environmental footprint, they're starting to address the data centers being uh, run on renewables rather than dirty energy. It's progressively a good story. The social dimension of technology barely touched upon. The spreading of disinformation, where taxes pay, transparency, where who holds data on who, who programs the artificial intelligence to make sure it's fair and representative of the society we live in. Not been thought about. So that's a great black hole for me in terms of the tech companies. And then there's a third dimension of technology for good, tech for good, which says having invented all this stuff, it's not just about making sure it's not causing problems, but how do we apply it to actually solve the systemic challenges we've got? I talked very briefly about tracking and tracing 3 billion items at M&S from global supply chains. Other retailers are 25 times bigger than Martin Spencer. Do the maths. Hundreds of billions of items sold every year from tens of thousands of locations. So to track and to trace is the beginning. And remote sensing, say artificial intelligence, big data sets, is critical to doing that as well. But once we've done that, we need new materials. So again, I've done some work with Unilever, taking a million tonnes a year out of oil out of its home care products. Oil is used to, as, a, as a base product in so many different consumer products and replacing them with more sustainable alternatives. Again, they're having to invent a whole new category of raw material to do it. The circular economy. Again, if I see some positivity about the net zero economy, low carbon, I can see a pathway to scale, but a long way to get there. The circular economy is just dotted with lots of tiny little subscale initiatives and award-winging stories, but there's no pathway to scale. We need new ways of linking new materials that are more sustainable, new logistics systems that bring things back, new reuse systems that allow people to constantly refill and reuse containers, for example, but we're barely scratching the surface of it. So all across this landscape of technology for good, 
I see opportunity, but we're way off the pace of where we need to be. Now, what actions need to happen in order to have those pathways to scale? So one part of it is very much about this government policy. Once the government mandates that economy's got to be net zero, typically by 2050, the signal goes into the marketplace that we need to do radical things radically different. Investors can then have the confidence to back these startups, these new ideas about doing things differently. So that's, I think that's number one. Second, we need the tech giants, the Googles, the Amazons, the Apples, who've got a pretty good story to tell today to accelerate that and to be an incubator for these new technologies and their ability to actually transform things. The third thing we've got to do is we've got to create a framework in which these new technologies can be used in a trusted way. So look what's happening with the food system. You know, we've, we've, we're going through a bit of a culture war at the moment about the shift from a meat-based diet to a plant-based one. We've barely scratched the surface of the conversations that will come as we shift beyond that to having indoor production of food. So the startup in the States at the moment, Plant Ag, looking to raise $9 billion US dollars to bring a third of US produce production indoors. On the surface, good for the environment, less fertilizer, less water, less pesticide, brilliant. Human rights abuses removed. It's just a man or a woman in a white coat with a computer running these indoor farms. But the social dimension, we remove hundreds of thousands of rural community jobs in, the, in America potentially in doing that. So we need a framework in which we can introduce these technologies in a way that trusted and don't take us from frying pan to fire. Solve one problem only by creating another one as well. If we do those three things, we can reap the benefits of technology for good. And the culture wars that you referred to a minute ago, and that's obviously highly consequential in terms of policymaking and election cycles and all of these things. So culture wars are a really important dimension of this, one that's going to become more important in the next decade. You know, we've seen the last five years the rise of political populism in the West, you know, the rise of Trump, Brexit in the UK, you know, the Chilean movement in, in France. The sense that globalization has not worked for significant proportions of, of the people, the communities in these so-called developed uh, economies. I mean, we talk in terms of a K-shaped recovery. The middle class are going to get richer. You know, they've been locked down for three years, still getting most of their incomes in many cases, nothing to spend it on. So they've just saved more. The poor have lost their jobs in a gig economy, no, no sort of income security whatsoever. Um, they're going to get poorer. And that's the pandemic. And I'm really concerned that we're stepping into a new low carbon, net zero, circular, sustainable economy. Mm -hmm. And we're just going to perpetuate the sense of income inequality and drive greater divide into society. And actually, the necessary shift that should be helping all of society will be blamed for that. So, you know, I, I just think politicians, business leaders, a bit sleep at the wheel at the moment about the social dimension of sustainable change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, let me touch a little bit on decarbonization. If we're going to decarbonize, really, there's three pillars, right? We got to have the uh, electrification of current uses. We got to have zero carbon emissions for the production of that electricity. And we got to have energy efficiency. How are you seeing both the direction of travel and the urgency of travel? Are you feeling optimistic? So, Bert, on some, some scale, I am optimistic. I think on individual silos of the decarbonisation journey, I can see a clear pathway to success. I think the UK has shown that with the shift to, to offshore wind, decarbonising the, the electricity grid here. But on other really crucial parts of the decarbonisation journey, particularly that when we involve citizens being asked to run lives very differently, how they drive a car, how they consume food, how they heat the home, we're barely woken up to the, the scale of it. So I'm 
I'm very concerned that we're underestimating the challenge of taking people with us on these journeys. And then overlapping all of it is the sense of the climate crisis, even in the pandemic, when we shut down the whole global economy, emissions barely dropped, and then they've rebounded very rapidly, even beyond where they were in 2019. So the science is incredibly against us. I mean, the world is warmed by little under 1.2, 1.3 degrees. We're nearly at that 1.5 tipping point. I'm really pessimistic about stopping at 1.5. I think we're heading for 2.5, three degrees of warming. Now, people might turn around and say, so what, Mike? You know, two, two and a half, three degrees of warming. Does that really matter? When the world was on average six degrees colder, that was the ice age. And where I'm sat here in the UK was under a thousand meters of ice. That's six degrees on average colder. I don't want to mess around at three degrees on average warmer with seven, eight billion people around me in a global economy will collapse. So I think we underestimate how much more needs to be done, how quickly in terms of change. Now, Mike, tell us a little bit more about that taking people with us and how do we achieve that? Uh, ultimately, no matter what policies come around, no matter what technologies come around, if people don't change their behaviors, we're just not going to get to where we need to go. So how do we achieve that? And I always remember the story about this plant-based burger where you told me two and a half years ago, Alberta, try out the plant-based burger side by side with a beef burger and you will be amazed. And there's one particular brand which I've tried and when when presented with the option of going with that plant-based burger versus an average beef burger, I will go with a plant-based burger. And that's a behavioral change of mind that I do willingly without being imposed upon. I do it because I actually prefer that option. And it happens to align perfectly with, with what we need to do. Uh, so, so Alberto, I mean, let, let's just unpick that very human individual story there. I think a lot of people now are exploring alternatives to meat, you know, flexitarianism. So rather than absolutely saying nothing in my diet, they're saying, oh, I'll try alternatives. I'm quite enjoying them. I might reduce my meat consumption by 10, 20, 30 percent. Now, that's in the context, context of a glowy, growing global population and developing nations consuming more meat as they become, become richer. So any small savings in terms of meat consumption here in the West, as we experiment with these new diets, is being overtaken by what's happening on a, on a wider scale. We need that context. I think the second thing we need to remember is that these plant-based alternatives that have been developed, they might not necessarily be healthier. So I think there's a narrative that will emerge to say, you can probably have an interesting, healthy meat-based diet but it's dramatically, it's produced in a dramatically different way from today's commoditized mass production of meat, which is just awful for the planet, society, and clearly animal welfare. And then there's a third dimension to this, the shift in the food system we need to work, remember. Lurking in the background behind plant-based is laboratory grown. Mm -hmm. And I think people are underestimating how quickly we're going to get to the point where laboratory grown meat is an option in terms of displacing bad commoditized, low-cost, high-volume meat uh, with all its impacts. I think there's a point in the mid-late 2020s where the tipping point comes and laboratory-grown is cheaper than conventional meat. So it's better for the environment, better for the animal, safer and healthier, and it's cheaper. And at that point, the gradual change to the world food system, just like we've seen with the electricity system, just like we've seen with the car system, the flywheel spins ever quicker. Now, who controls those global food systems? Is it one big global corporation that produces all the meat in secret behind closed doors? 
debate and discuss what do we do with hundreds of well, millions of farmers who are producing conventional meat and suddenly have been cast to one side because we've got this new, better version, in theory, coming out of the laboratory. And again, we're not exploring the theory of change for these consumption-based systems. We're underestimating how much of a backlash there might be, how we need to regulate differently as well to get the potential. Mike, when you say a burger that's manufactured in a lab, it doesn't get my juices flowing. I don't instinctively think, okay, where's the ketchup bottle? Let me take a bite of this burger. Do you see any challenges on the marketing front? How do we get to position something like that in a way that's palatable to the everyday consumer? But, but again, it's, it's not difficult to solve because, it, again, if you put on the front of your typical meat-based product, the, reality, the grim reality of how it was produced, the animal misery, the environmental impacts, the human misery of, of a lot of people who work in these supply chains, no one would touch it with a barge pole. So let's be clear that meat is sold today is sold behind a facade. So all it needs is somebody who's a smart marketeer to put a smart front, front end on the laboratory grow, and it'll fly because it'll be cheaper and it'll be cleaner. So as much as I sort of respect that as a problem, it'll be solved. Um, and, you know, you know, there's a backlash in Europe against genetically modified food 20, 25 years ago that remains to a degree. There is a, a deep suspicion of tinkering with, with food um, or the perception in people's minds. Didn't happen in most of the rest of the world. Um, so I can see as a fork in the road for the world food system. One is to a high-volume indoor-produced system, Mm -hmm. very much more sustainable, but with also some real down, downsides that we need to manage. The other direction, a low-volume, high-value conventional food system, so livestock, the farmer's been on the land, his family for 100 years, he's practicing regenerative agriculture, he's locking carbon up in the soil, he's looking after his animals, you're getting a great-tasting, authentic, transparent burger, but it's going to cost you more than the laboratory grown one. It might be low volume, but say it's high value. The bit in the middle that commoditized awful meat production of today is the bit that disappears. So again, on the technology side, so with the lab-grown burger, in a few years' time, we'll likely be able to purchase that uh, just like we purchase any other type of uh, food. What other exciting technological developments do you see coming down the pipeline for the next three, five, ten years? So, again, we've talked about technology for good, the ability to track and to trace billions of items around the planet and manage them better. I think that that's going to really take off. Plastics. Plastics has to change. It's been given 10, 20 years of repeated support to say plastics is important. It's good for society, protects products. It's cheap and flexible to use. But it's ending up in the oceans in ever greater quantities. And actually, the solution there is not ever more esoteric technology um, developments, you know, something that's meant to be biodegradable. It is just simplifying the plastic system, minimizing its use. When we use a pl plastic, it's the same polymer. It's collected in the same way. It's reused in the same way. So technology breakthroughs are not necessarily about putting a man or a woman on the moon. They're actually about simplifying processes and logistics of closing the loop as well. We've talked about the food system, laboratory grown versus um, regenerative agriculture. Mobility is well understood now in terms of the electric car. But I would say, again, to challenge the electric car, it's still a metal box that's going to sit in a traffic jam in Los Angeles, just like a diesel car. It might be producing less pollution, but it's still in a traffic jam. And the true end point is a much more integrated approach to public transport designing cities for people to live in and not have to commute hours across every day. 
So I don't think the electric car of itself is the endpoint of a truly sustainable mobility system. You know, aviation, again, critical part of modern life. Um, I think, you know, some people will increasingly reject it, not want to fly, but many will for business and personal reasons. So sustainable jet fuel will become ever more important in this. I mentioned the Unilever story, decarbonising the oil that's used in as a raw material behind the scenes, invisible to people and consumer products. That's rich for innovation, for scale to do that as well. And then behind the scenes are things that most people never see, how steel is produced, concrete is produced, radically decarbonising those pathways. And the Rest to Zero initiative in the run-up to COP26 is doing an awful lot to bring sectors together to accelerate and scale up uh, the low-carbon option behind the scenes. And my final point, the true innovation for me, and we're very, very bad at this as an economy society today, is systems thinking. We have to design the city of the future, because we're going to be a more ever more urban society, to work in an integrated way. The energy system, the water system, the education system, the health system, the mobility system, drawn together. So I actually think cities become a critical part of taking action on sustainability in the way that nation states are just too far and too distant from most people's lives. Mm, mm. That's really, really interesting. The role of cities and driving forward the SDG agenda. Tell us, so in terms of the next 10 years, where do you see success for the next 10 years? How do you see success for you in the next 10 years? I'm, I'm going to say success for me in 2030 is 70 or 80% of global society bought into the need for change and actively participating in change. So I'm not going to frame it as carbon emissions, that we need 50% less carbon emissions by 2030. The only way we're going to achieve those endpoints, the SDGs, is if society as a whole, not just the 10% who are proactively green and ahead of the curve, but we scale it into the mainstream and make people want to be part of the journey, decarbonising the home, mobility, diet, etc., Without that mass global engagement, um, we will fail miserably. Whatever technical solutions we develop in the laboratory, we need people with us. I love it. That mass global engagement and taking people with us. So very, very important. Tell me, what's that key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? So, so, so let me just, just based on 20 years of experience at M&S and now working with multiple different clients across the global economy, there are three simple questions for any boardroom. Why do I need to become sustainable? What do I commit to do to become sustainable? How do I integrate it to my business? Some businesses are good at the what. They come up with lots of targets and numbers and systems and report and three people in the business manage it, isolated from everybody else. A few businesses come up with a nice sort of um, strategy in the boardroom, but it never lands on the shop floor and never bought into by the consumer base or the shareholder base. The businesses of the future are clear about the drivers for change, and strategically integrate it into their business model, their culture, their purpose. Secondly, they're absolutely clear about what goals they need to deliver. And I stress the word deliver. I see lots of businesses coming out with press releases saying, yeah, 50% reduction in decarbonisation, and then think by magic it'll happen. They need to put in place a governance system in, in, in the business to actually deliver it. And that third question, how do I integrate it into my business, is all about emotional intelligence. I've got millions of consumers, tens of thousands of colleagues, tens of thousands of suppliers, thousands of shareholders. I need a conversation with them to explain why I'm acting and the benefits of acting. This has to be about human buy-in to what we're doing. Not a few technocrats, not a few billionaires, not a few politicians. Just thinking that they can make decisions remote from people's lives as to what will, what will drive the change we need. 
Excellent. Wonderful. Mike, look, thanks so very much for joining me and joining us on the Do One Better podcast today. Great seeing you back on the show. Let's not let it be another two and a half years until you're back on with us. Here's to continued success with all the work you're doing, all the passion you're bringing into the conversation. And I look forward to our next conversation very much. Thanks a lot, Mike. Alberto, absolute pleasure. Thank you. Perfect. And that's a wrap. You've been listening to Mike Barry of Mike Barry Eco, someone who has a great deal of experience and knowledge in the world of sustainability and sustainable business. For a full transcript of today's conversation, just visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org, where you will also find information on more than 100 other interviews with remarkable thought leaders. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Great catching up with everyone today, and I will see you next week.